This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Advocates for 2020 election fraud theories continue their losing streak in legal challenges to the 2020 election. Yesterday, they lost their bid to sue city clerks and the Wisconsin Elections Commission for accepting $10 million in grants from an organization founded by Mark Zuckerberg. Dane County Circuit Court Judge Stephen Elke ruled from the bench that there was nothing illegal about the clerks using private grants to run elections, nor was it illegal for the Elections Commission to approve the grants. This defeat followed cases lost on the same issue by a federal judge in Green Bay, Washington, D.C., the state Supreme Court, and five cases before the Elections Commission. In other 2020 election news, the Journal Sentinel reports that the current cost of the ongoing Gableman investigation is now close to $900,000 due to additional attorney fees. Special prosecutors will not file charges against a former Wauwatosa police officer in the killing of Jay Anderson Jr. in 2016, according to a report by Wisconsin Public Radio. Prosecutor Scott Hansen says the key to that decision was a squad video that showed the shooting of Anderson by Officer Joseph Mensa. The Milwaukee County judge accepted the prosecutor's findings. Still, the judge called the shooting a tragedy that could have been avoided. Anderson, 25, was one of three people Officer Mensa killed during a five-year stint at the Wauwatosa Police Department. Mensa resigned from the Wauwatosa Department in November of 2020, following his third killing and joined the Waukesha County Sheriff's Department. The Associated Press reports that the Milwaukee Common Council unanimously approved an initiative that could move the city closer to hosting the 2024 Republican National Convention. Milwaukee and Nashville are the final contenders for the convention, which could draw tens of thousands of visitors. The winner could be announced by the end of this month. The local host committee, which is led by former White House Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, must raise the funds to stage the event, including a financial guarantee to cover any shortfalls. The Democratic Party held its convention in Milwaukee in 2020, but was limited in scope due to the pandemic. And those were your local news headlines. We turn now to two special guests in the studio, Jade Dysiri Ramos and Nate Weggehaupt, who want to tell you a little something about WORT and our pledge drive. Thanks, Vicki. We have great news. We do. We have our first donation of the hour coming in from Peggy. Uh, Peggy, thank you so much for your donation. Peggy's favorite shows, uh, Democracy Now!, of course, coming on right before us here, A Public Affair, and, of course, Rockin' John. Gotta rockin' love, John gotta is rockin'. Love, you gotta He's love rockin'. rockin' John. Uh, very first very first donation of the Summer Pledge Drive of the hour here. Yeah, for so, local news. First person to support local news. Thanks, Peggy. Be like Peggy. You can call 608-256-2001, extension 1. Or how do you do that online? Uh, you can go right online and you can click on the Donate tab right at the top of the page there. And that will bring you to the website there and you can donate right there. Yeah, wortfm.org. 
We've got a pretty exciting uh, Wednesday news for you coming up. Now, you were telling me we have a new volunteer. We have an, our newest volunteer, Tegan Carter. They uh, have their story coming up here in just a little bit. Uh, we have we cover pretty much everything here on this news, So and it can only really happen with your donation. So Your donations means that Tegan was able to take a recorder out, do their re- reporting, and put it all together, get it uh, through our software here that makes turns it into beautiful radio. Um, you can support that by calling 608-256-2001, extension 1, or going online. That's wortfm.org. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to support uh, WORT. The local news is a big one. It, it is. We, we do our best here at the local news to really bring Madison voices into the picture there and try and, try and just look at what's happening in Madison and in an objective way and across the state too. But we really appreciate everything that you do. I hear a phone call. And so we'll let the phone takers take that, that pledge and we'll go back to Vicki right now. Faculty and staff at multiple schools in the Madison Metropolitan School District held walkouts last Friday to call for larger wage increases in the district's budget for the next school year. The walkout came in response to the district's original budget proposal laid out in April by the Madison Board of Education. WORT reporter Reed Kamai was at Madison East High School to hear from demonstrators. Strive for five. That was the message from faculty and staff from Madison East High School. The five they're referencing is more specifically 4.7. That's the percentage increase they want to see to their base wages in light of inflation and to line up with other Wisconsin school districts. The proposed budget released by the Madison School Board last month allocates a base wage increase of 2%, less than half of what educators are demanding. Sarah Bringman is a retired teacher and current member of Madison Teachers Incorporated, or MTI, the union for teachers in the district. Citing the current wages of staff and teachers compared to those at restaurant and store chains, Bringman predicts an exodus from Madison schools if the lower pay increase goes ahead. And right now the district is only offering a 2% increase, which means, as you can understand, that if our outside districts are offering a 4.7% increase, people are going to be drawn to those schools. Carla Oppenheimer is an English teacher at East and was one of several speakers at the rally. She said that the turnover of staff is detrimental to students' learning experiences. Staffing levels and retention directly impact the experiences of our students. When staff positions turn over every year, when positions sit unfilled for weeks or months at a time, and when staff are forced to leave mid-year to protect their own well-being, as 15 people have at East this year, mid-year, it makes our schools less safe less equitable, less joyful, and less rigorous places for children to learn and grow. An electronic petition laid out the union's demands, which include, in addition to the 4.7% base wage increase, an increase of $5 to the hourly wages of educational and security assistance, step increases to be specified on teacher contracts, and an increase of substitutes pay rates. Michael Jones, the president of MTI, also addressed the crowd. He expressed his disagreement with the district's decision-making. When they presented their budget, they said it's a moral document. And they said it's student-centered. Tell me how it's student-centered when for the price of roughly 40 EAs, they just passed 
repaving the the uh, the parking lots at schools. That could have paid for 40 EAs for a year. Where are your where are our priorities? The walkout on Friday follows the May school board meeting, at which faculty and staff made similar appeals before the board. However, some of their addresses occurred during the first hour, which, due to a technical issue, was muted to online viewers. Rachel Pulling is a first grade teacher at Mendota Elementary School. She says that staff shortages at schools affect more than just the concrete learning in the classroom. I would say the main problem that sticks out to me at Mendota Elementary School is safety. And I think this is a problem across the entire district. Because when we do not have fully staffed schools, we do not have safe schools. When we have students whose needs are not being met, we do not have safe schools. Um, overall, we don't have the resources, the people, the space to provide the, um, the resources that the students need. Pulling added that these issues extend well beyond Madison. I just think that this problem is every single person in the world's problem. Our children are our children, and they deserve better than this. The school board will vote on the proposed budget at its next regular meeting on Monday, June 27th. A final budget is due this fall. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. While the filing deadline for the fall 2022 election passed at 5 p.m. today, some candidates are looking ahead to elections a little farther down the road. That includes one Dane County judge who has announced their intention to run for state Supreme Court next spring. WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt has more. Dane County Judge Everett Mitchell announced earlier today that he is running for a seat on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Mitchell will be running for the seat currently held by conservative justice Patience Rogensack, who will not be running for re-election. With Rogensack's retirement, the election will decide if the court remains conservative or if it will flip liberal. Wisconsin Supreme Court justices hold 10-year terms. Mitchell will be running against Janet Protosewick, who has sat on the Milwaukee County Circuit Court since 2016. Both Mitchell and Protozaewick are considered liberal judges. Mitchell says that he is running for the seat to help uphold the integrity and independence of the court. I believe that our state justices, you know, have a tremendous responsibility related to the decisions that are being handed down that really impact the lives of everyday Wisconsinites. And so I think our, I know Wisconsinites deserve a justice that reflects the growing diversity and ideas in our communities within our state. Mitchell, a former prosecutor, was elected to the Dane County Circuit Court in 2016, where he oversees cases involving child welfare, civil law, and criminal proceedings. Mitchell also serves as a pastor at the Christ the Solid Rock Baptist Church here in Madison. As pastor of the church, he was the first black pastor in Wisconsin to marry a gay couple inside the church in 2015. He says that that experience as a pastor has influenced how he runs a courtroom. I would say that pastoring has taught me to be a better listener. And so as a judge, one of the greatest gifts we can ever give to people is learning to listen and to making sure that we withhold judgment on situations because we're choosing to listen and we're choosing to make sure that we are giving full weight of of what we hear to the people that are in front of us. Mitchell also says that he sees himself as someone who can heal ideological wounds between people. You see the court being splendid in many different ways, ideologically, politically, 
But what I've tried to do in my work in the community is really be a person who seeks to find ways that we pull people together rather than being comfortable being stuck in ideological silos. Because in my experience, that has never been helpful. And and it has never been able, you've never been able to promote justice when you're stuck in silos. The election for state Supreme Court will take place in April 2023 not later this November. In other election news, today was the filing day for candidates running in this year's August primary and November general election. Candidates needed to have filed their paperwork with the Wisconsin Elections Commission today by 5 p.m. Stay tuned to WORT News this summer for interviews with the candidates. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wiggyhout. It's getting warm outside, which means that Madison's beaches will, in all likelihood, soon close en masse due to toxic algae blooms. But one Madison beach is looking to buck that trend and the toxic blue-green algae with a new filtration system. WORT's newest reporter, Tegan Carter, has the story. Warner Park Beach is now home to a designated safe, clean swimming area. Earlier today, Madison and Dane County leaders showed off the Clean Beach Corridor there, part of an ongoing project to keep beaches open and free of algae blooms during the summer months. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi says the goal of the project is to reduce beach closures. A couple of the other projects we've done, we've seen anywhere from a 75 to up to a 90 percent reduction in the days of the beach being closed because the system works so well. The corridor, insulated from the rest of Lake Mendota, will continuously pump filtered water, chemical-free. It'll filter out blue-green algae, a frequent cause of beach closures during the summer. Here's Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway. The the really, I think, amazing thing about these clean beach corridors is how they can fend off algae even in peak periods of nearby blooms, which makes it sure that families can have a safe place, a free place, to go swimming even in the height of summer. Similar systems are slated to come to beaches in coming years. Officials picked Warner Park Beach now due to ongoing construction. But mostly we took into account the fact that we really wanted to use an equity lens in choosing where to put this opportunity for families to swim. So we really wanted to focus on the north side and make sure that north side families have a free opportunity to go swimming that will be safe all summer long. Um, And so we're going to continue to look through that lens as we look around the city and balance the question of of closures and safety with equity uh, as we continue to choose future beaches. John Reimer is a water engineer for Dane County. He designed the filtration system used to eliminate harmful algae from entering the corridor. The heart of the filtration system is a pump that filters 100 gallons of water per minute. Pump it into our filtration equipment, which um, removes uh, like the heavy solids through, through a strainer. Then it goes through a sand filter, um, removes algae and a little bit finer particles. And then once that's removed, then it goes to a UV system, um, which um, kills pathogens, um, disinfects the pathogens and other uh, other um, um, bacteria. And then after that, the clean water and, um, comes back into the center of the swimming area where kids like to swim. So Dane County covered the $90,000 cost of creating the corridor. The city of Madison invested $700,000 towards the new shelter and pays for operational costs. The filtration system will be mostly powered by solar panels that were being installed during the conference. The corridor is open now, along with a similar corridor at Bernie's Beach Park on Monona Bay. There are several other corridors around Dane County, Mendota County Park in Middleton and the Goodland County Park in McFarland. 
and a beach at Tenney Park is slated to get its own corridor in 2024. For all other beaches, though, make sure to check water conditions before you go to make sure they're not closed due to unsafe levels of E. coli and blue-green algae. Both of these can make people and pets sick in unsafe amounts. You can find which beaches are closed at publichealthmdc.com and never swim in water that looks like pea soup, green or blue paint, or that has a scum layer or puffy blobs floating on the surface. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Tegan Carter. It's now 6.22 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Today, a Dane County judge issued another loss to the Gableman investigation into the 2020 presidential election investigation. But back in 2020, a retired hypnotherapist was the first to sow seeds of doubt in the election when Jay Stone filed a complaint to the Wisconsin Elections Commission for funds used to help conduct safe elections at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Multiple judges found that the funds from the Center for Tech and Civic Life were completely legal and that Joe Biden won the state of Wisconsin. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Jay Stone about why he filed that complaint. This is a portion of their conversation. The full interview is available online at wortfm.org. Last week, WORT spoke with Megan O. Matz, reporter with ProPublica, about her recent article on Jay Stone, former hypnotherapist who played a crucial role in casting doubt into the 2020 presidential election. Today, I'm joined on the line with Jay Stone. Jay, thank you so much for coming on here with me today. It's, it's my pleasure, and you did a, a great job interviewing Megan. Oh, thank you so much. That was uh, actually my cohort, Heron, while taking over while I was on vacation. Man, I say I apologize for making the mistake. <laughs> no problem. We sound, we sound pretty similar there. You sort of kicked off the Gableman investigation into the center of civic life, and that was sort of uh, what you really took issue with. Uh, could you explain that a little bit to me? What did you take issue with the Center for Civic Life? Well, um the fact that it's the first time in the history of our country uh, that public elections were funded privately, and I, I saw the uh, the, grant, the CTCL's election grants as really political donations, and I said such in my uh, original complaint. Now, uh, it's important to note that I filed, I'm the first person to file a state and federal complaint, so I have a uh, Federal Election Commission complaint that's still active, uh, Administrator uh, Megan Wolf rejected my Wisconsin Election Commission complaint, never even reviewed it. And I've subsequently discovered that Megan Wolf was in contact with CTCL and uh, what CTCL calls its technical partners um, prior to my complaint and during the complaint period in which uh, she has ten, she had 10 days to respond to my complaint. And so I, I sort of have to ask here, there have been sort of multiple courts who have affirmed that what the Center for Civic Life did was completely legal, uh, including a ruling that happened just earlier today by uh, Circuit Judge, Judge yeah. Stephen I'm, Elke. I'm I want to ask, why Why are you still sort of fighting this, you know, a year and a half later, even after multiple courts have found that there was no evidence of any fraud or bribery or anything like that? Why are you still, why are you still going? 
Well, because it was wrong, and it adversely impacted a free and fair election. Uh, and, and, you know, the, they, they cite cases, and I'm not talking about the case today, but the first federal court case was rejected for two reasons. Number one, uh, the plaintiffs uh, had to go to the Wisconsin Election Commission first, and the Supreme Court had ruled that judges should tread very carefully when deciding an election law case close to an election. But it's also important to note that no court has ordered depositions, so nobody has been under oath. I would love to hear Megan Wolf under oath and testify, and I would love to hear Tiana Epps Johnson under oath and testify. So I think this is far from over um, uh, as far as getting to the truth of what happened. Currently, uh, there's about 50 United States congressmen that forms a election integrity caucus that that's actually done some research that showed 90% of CTCL's grants uh, went to uh, counties that um, uh, Joe Biden won, and only 10% of the money went to counties that Trump won. And so now, Jay, I know that there's some people, including uh, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, and they have sort of called this investigation a, and this is a, quote, embarrassment for our state and a colossal waste of tax dollars, uh, end quote. I want to know, what are your sort of your thoughts on that and people who think that this investigation? It's a partisan, partisan, Tony Evers made a partisan statement to his partisan base. That's, That's my thoughts on that. Well, what about other people, uh, just, you know, normal people on the street here? They're, they're not informed. I, I, I just knocked on, I don't know, hundreds of doors, and not many people are, are, are informed, certainly not as informed as, as, as I have been. You know, they just don't, they just don't know the particulars. Uh, let's take a look at um, the 2016 election. Uh, there was just a trial for, for Sussman. You know, he was acquitted. Uh, you know, that's what the jury decided. But it took, uh, th- that happened in 2015, so it took seven years uh, f- for the special counsel to, to, to get it in court. You know, this will be going on for years. I've been talking with Jay Stone, a retired hypnotherapist who was one of the first to raise concerns about the 2020 presidential election and has been involved with the Gableman investigation into that election. Jay, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. I appreciate you having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT 89.9 FM. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We continue our series on the Medina Mosque here in Madison. Not a house on the rock, but a rock in a house with parks and landmarks and a special Memorial Day episode of Madison in the 60s. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us here on the 6 p.m. local news. For over 25 years, the rock in the house preserved the scene of a little natural disaster. Now its owners have closed part of the attraction to the public. WORT contributor Sean Bull has more. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underappreciated outdoors. This isn't exactly a Memorial Day episode, but I'd like to take my time today to eulogize one of my favorite weird little roadside attractions, Wisconsin's own Rock in the House. As I did the last time I wrote about this place, I should make it immediately clear, we are not talking about the house on the rock today. Most Wisconsinites are familiar on some level with the crazy house in the hills above Spring Green, Alex Jordan's mid-century middle finger to Frank Lloyd Wright. Again, that is emphatically not the house we're talking about today. The house on the rock is a mansion built on top of a rock. The rock in the house is just a normal house that a boulder happened to fall into. Though the two attractions' names bear a surface similarity, they could not be more different in purpose. The House on the Rock is a four-hour-long march through an immense collection of everything and nothing. It technically qualifies as a museum, though it seems to be curated by the same guy who writes the dreams I have after stuffing myself with too much Chinese takeout. Its only theme, so far as I can figure out, is the excesses of the 19th and 20th century American empire. On the other hand, the Rock in the House is the complete opposite. It's a tiny museum, maybe an acre if you count the yard outside. But the little space is laser-focused on examining a single moment in time. Specifically, April 24th, 1995, 11.38 a.m. On that morning, Maxine Anderson stood in her kitchen in Fountain City, Wisconsin. Fountain City is a community on the state's very west edge, carved in the meager space between tall wooded bluffs and the mighty blue Mississippi. Though the world has changed vastly in the last century, the Mississippi River will always be a commercial artery. Despite everything, the town's population has remained about the same for as long as we've had census data. This constancy is reflected in the city's architecture. Other than a small quick trip and the occasional bed and breakfast, it's clear that not a lot new has been built here in a while. There's a lot of wood siding, brick, and just older styles of home construction in general. The Andersons' home is particularly interesting because it appears to be an amalgamation, built out and added to over time. The house is at 440 North Shore Drive, the very north end of town. Here, the bluffs loom especially close, mere yards from the river. This leaves just enough room for a row of single-family homes two lanes of State Highway 35, two sets of train tracks, and an Army Corps of Engineers base. You can mostly only see the west face of the house from the road, so consequently, that's the side of the house that looks the best. It's a combination of concrete and red brick standing tall above a narrow sidewalk. The yard slopes such that it's actually the basement that steps out to this walk. More brick and concrete frame the stairs that lead up to the actual front entrance. A pair of small stone lions flank the door to the sunroom on the north side of the building. This entrance, too, is locked, but you can see some of the Andersons' furniture stored inside. Continuing along a brick path under the shade of a maple canopy, 
you come to the actual entrance, a white metal storm door which leads you right from a covered concrete patio into the kitchen. It was this kitchen with its white and blue cupboards and butcher block counters in which Maxine Anderson stood 27 Aprils ago. It was 11.38 a.m. Perhaps she was thinking about preparing an early lunch. Then, without warning, a 55-ton chunk of rock freed itself from the bluff above. Rolling, it ripped through the trees and came to a crashing halt in the master bedroom, not ten feet from where Maxine stood. It was a near miss, but Maxine and Dwight were unharmed. The house, of course, was not so lucky. Big chunks of the kitchen ceiling now hung down, and there were smaller cracks in the wallboard throughout the house. But the damage was concentrated at the point of impact. The bedroom was flattened. Thin wood walls and a tin roof gave no resistance, and now a meteor stood in their place. Though, despite being a rough disk in shape, the rock didn't roll any further. Miraculously, the rest of the house was still pretty livable. Of course, technically livable is not the same standard as actually feeling like a home. I don't know whether the Andersons were particularly religious, but I imagine it would be easy to take this event as a pretty clear sign that it was time to move. The only issue was, who would buy a house that seems just a bit cursed? We don't have time to get into it, but this wasn't even the first time this happened. A rock fell on the same house in April of 1907, and it actually killed someone the first time. Perhaps the outcome we got was the best one possible. A local real estate investor bought the house and preserved it, more or less exactly as it was the day the rock fell. For just $2, anyone could take a self-guided tour, see the rock, and try to imagine themselves in the Anderson's shoes. So it was, for a quarter of a century, a simple little museum in an idyllic corner of Wisconsin. This Memorial Day, my wife and I happened to be driving through the area, and we stopped. Something had changed. The door was locked, and taped to the glass was a new handwritten note. Someone took away your privilege of seeing the rock and info about it by taking the money box and destroying the property. Signed, Owner. So that's it, I guess. After all these years, the rock in the house is dead. Since no one more qualified has stepped up, let's do an autopsy, shall we? The money box the note refers to was a rusty metal toolbox strapped to the house's low wrought iron fence. They asked each visitor to donate $2 and secured the cash with a couple $5 padlocks. By this, I mean they asked in more handwritten notes. Everything about the rock in the house was run on the honor system. There were no employees present, or no cameras even. Even with the nicest guests in the world, I would be really surprised if this was the first time the money box was stolen. Even if it was, even if 100% of the donations were going straight to the owners, I can't imagine that covered the cost of this place. In addition to property taxes, they were for some reason paying to keep the water and electricity running. That means they were probably paying for heat as well, if for no other reason than to keep the pipes from bursting in the winter. They were paying for a whole house full of expenses. And for what? So we could gawk with all the proper context? I can see how that would get old after a couple decades. Throw a little vandalism into the mix, and I can totally see how we got here. Luckily, if you haven't seen The Rock yet, there's some good news. The owners still allow visitors, but you can only explore around the outside. Thankfully, 
This includes walking right up to the rock. Additionally, the house is registered as a historic site, so even if they wanted to sell, I doubt the next owner could change much without going through a couple of committees first. It's a little sad that visitors can't get the full museum experience anymore, but the rock in the house is still absolutely worth seeing if you're in the area. Although, if you're visiting in April, keep an ear to the ground. You never know when the impossible might happen again. If you'd like to suggest a topic for Parks and Landmarks to cover, please send it my way at sean.bull at wortfm.org. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. This segment's title is intentionally broad, so just go for it. I'd love to hear from you guys. Again, that's S-E-A-N dot B-U-L-L at W-O-R-T-F-M dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. It's now 6.41 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on W-O-R-T. We turn now for a report from you and our pledge drive. What's the news, Jade and Nate? Well, we have some pretty big news coming out of here. Would you like to do the honors? I would love to do the honors. (laughs) I was very much looking forward to that because we have a $40 donation just came in. Thank you so much. Online donation. Anonymous. Um, It. This person really likes the local news, which we do too. We do. And especially likes on Thursdays when we have Fermenting Wart um, by our contributor, contributor Colin. Um, so thank you so much, Anonymous. You can also be like Anonymous if you call right now. That's 608-256-2001, extension 1. You can also go and donate online at wortfm.org. Org, uh, you can click the link right there, and I'll bring you right to the page, and you can join Anonymous, who they made a web donation. So as you can see, it's so easy. Uh, Anonymous can do it. So if they can do it, you can do it too. Uh, thank you so much for donating. We really appreciate we it. We really do. And, you know, this is actually, this hour is going by really fast. So this is our last um, pledge break during the hour. If you can go online, I bet you can get it in um, while we're still on the air right now. We can thank you. If not, I'm going to write you a beautiful thing. Thank you card. Um, so go online, donate, uh, support all the great stuff that we have here on the local news. We we really appreciate all the support that you can give us. We really need to replace both of the soundboards that we have in our studios. Uh, and we were able to raise the funds for one of the boards, but we're still only halfway there. So we still need some help with the other boards. And uh, those boards, I mean, they're important for everything that we do yeah, here absolutely. on the news we need those to get over to get anything over the air so again call 608-256-2001 extension one donate now uh we really appreciate everything that you can get for us and you know i, I hear a caller coming in right now so i just want to say thank you to that caller whoever you are i know that you are going to be donating because you love um w-o-r-t and you love the local news you know we are a uh you know Tightly funded, tightly funded news team here at WORT, <laughs> but we are award winning. That's um, true. Just a, a month or two ago, we came out of award season with like seven, eight awards. Oh, I it's something something along those lines. I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but yeah, we have award winning shows right here on the WORT local news. We've been if you, you're an avid listener of the 
uh, 6 p.m. local news here. We've been interspersing our award-winning stories throughout the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like like you said, Jade, this is a very, uh, we run a, a tight ship here. We're very lean in our funding, but we're still able to get those awards. Uh, and part of that is thanks to you uh, for donating. So every, you know, that helps us to can keep on going and keep on churning out uh, all of those great stories that uh, you're able to hear right here on WORT 6 p.m. local news. 608-256-2001 extension 1 or WORTFM.org. Here at WORT, we, uh, we take a dollar and we stretch it about 10 different ways. So <laughs> <laughs> your money cannot go further um, anywhere but WORT. So thank you. Well, please, please consider donating today. Uh, we would really, really appreciate your help with us in getting these new boards. Just one more time. That's 608-256-2001, extension 1, or WORTFM.org. And we'll go back to Vicki. The practice of religion is intensely private, but can also be very public. People who may be deeply devoted may rarely share their experience of their religion, and as a result, we know little about their beliefs. The 6 p.m. local news is featuring short portraits of the diverse religious institutions in our area in a series called Our Faith Communities, produced by David Ahrens. This is part two of that feature, a continuation of last night's episode on the Medina Mosque and Community Center. After his sermon, I talked with Imanjalo about the meaning of the Islamic faith and its importance to its adherents. Imanjalo has been the faith leader of the Medina Community Center and Mosque for 13 years. He's a native of the Gambia in West Africa. Before coming to Madison, the Iman studied in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. What brings people the most in Islam, based on what I have seen, is their simpleness Islam is offering and also the clarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Islam doesn't leave you with unanswered question. And the other thing is, Islam has uh, principles that are unchangeable principles, that has two origins. One is their main source, which is the Quran, mm-hmm. which was built to change speaking work. So that makes it easy to keep the practice as it was for 200 years till now, mm-hmm. with no changes. The second one is the sayings of the Prophet, how he advises or commands us to do things certainly. And also, uh, Muslims are really strong in uh, rejecting anything that is an innovation to their religion. Yes. So how they, you know, use or how they will identify that this is part of the religion is by going back to the two unchangeable uh, sources. There should be no differences uh, because these two sources are unchangeable. But you will find sects mm-hmm. within the Muslim, just as you said, mm-hmm. in other faith. You will see people are more conservative, people are more liberal, you will find that. And the reason why is the way other people take or use this text, this proves. For example, I am a Muslim, but I don't offer five daily prayers. So here they are violating the most important principle mm-hmm. because they will not find a proof in Islam. If you ask them, they will admit that you have to pray 
but I'm not praying. Yeah. So that judgment is based on them. So Islam will say, a Muslim, you have to pray five times a day. So that will move them towards a sect. And Muslims who are following their, their two main sources will always rectify them. Always tell them, this was not done by the Prophet. It's not in the principles. So sometimes you'll find them very far, sometimes in the middle. What is the nature of the prayer then in Islam? That's a very important question because in Islam, everybody have a personal relationship with God. So that's the reason why there are the things that you hide it because there's a principle called sincerity. And uh, in Islam, sincerity is you do something for God to be happy, not for the people. If you want your worship to be accepted, the first move should be, I want this to be for God. Like for example, smiling on the person next to you is considered charity. If you do it to make God happy, because first you're making it for God. And then of course it results, you know, acceptance from the other person. But there's a reason why when we pray, you see everybody saying something different maybe. When you prostrate, one is asking God, forgive me. One is asking God, give me money. One is asking God, give me a wife. One is asking God, protect me from evil. So everybody have their personal relationship with God. So we don't have where we have somebody who that who we should go through them to reach to God. For him actually in Islam. So you have to have that personal relationship. And in Islam, when you pray, like there are two types of prayers. One is something that God obligated upon you, such as five daily prayers, and these are five principles. Five daily prayers, fasting the water from Ramadan, and also performing the Hajj, the program, and also doing the uh, giving charity, yearly uh, zakah. These are something that God put in place as a principle, and every Muslim should person to be a Muslim. Number one is to testify that there is no God but one God, and Muhammad and all the messengers and prophets are servants of God and His messengers. Number two is to pray five times a day. Number three is to pay zakah, which is charity, yearly, 2.5 from your wealth, if you have it all year round. The fourth is fasting the amount of Ramadan completely. The fifth will be uh, performing the Hajj. So going yeah. to Mecca. Yes, the five principles mm -hmm. that Islam, all, all about Islam, is based on. And we are taking a short pause to do a quick and grateful acknowledgement to Patrick Derricks, who has recently just now sent in another pledge for our show. Thank you so much, Patrick. When asked, what are your three favorite WORT shows? Patrick's response was everything in general. And we really love that attitude. So thank you again very much for your support. And... We go now to the years 1965 to 1967 for a Memorial Day tribute to Madison men who died in Vietnam. Stu Levitan has the honor roll on this week's edition of Madison in the 60s. All these Madison in the 60s, a Memorial Day tribute to our Vietnam casualties, part one. 
1965, Marine Staff Sergeant Roscoe Ammerman, 37, becomes the first casualty from Madison when he is killed in action in Kwangnam Province on October 3rd. Ammerman dropped out of Central High School following his junior year to join the Marines at 17 in August 1945. He saw combat in the Korean War, later served in Lebanon, and died an infantry unit leader. He is survived by his mother, a sister, and two brothers, all of Madison. 1966. Marine Lance Corporal Jean-Pierre Dowling, 22, East High Class of 1962, is killed by small arms fire in Quang Nai province on January 29th. In order that Dowling can be buried in the soldiers' section at Forest Hill Cemetery, the council quickly adopts an ordinance expanding eligibility from the World Wars and the Korean War to any combat area or American police action. And Marlboro Park neighbors on Crawford Drive both lose their sons in Vietnam in a two-month period. Marine Corporal Michael Joseph Banavez, 4342 Crawford Drive, is shot to death in Quang Tri Province on July 18th, 17 days after his 21st birthday. The Madison native was on a four-month extension after his three-year tour of duty ended June 28th. Banavez was a record-setting hurdler at West High School, class of 1963. He joined the Marines shortly after high school graduation. At his Marine graduation, he was the platoon's honor man. A member of Bethel Lutheran Church, Banavez is the first alumnus of the Madison Scouts Drum and Bugle Corps, including 115 veterans of World War II to die in combat. And Marine Private First Class Donald Dingledine, 21, whose parents live at 4346 Crawford Drive, is accidentally shot and killed by a fellow Marine near Da Nang on September 18th. Dingledine, a machine gunner who lettered in football in the class of 1963 at Waukesha High School, enlisted in the Marine Corps in February. And nine Madison men die in 1967, including two Pergolders on the same day, January 12th. Major Charles Toma, 30, East High Class of 1954, UW Class of 1958, dies after being shot in the head by a sniper while leading a search-and-destroy mission of the Black Lion Battalion, the 28th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division, in the jungle northwest of Saigon. The son of retired Army Colonel Henry C. Toma, 4182 Nakoma Road, and Mrs. Clifford Engel of San Francisco. Major Toma was captain of the cross-country team, a member of the track and wrestling teams, and a member of Phi Kappa Sigma at the University of Wisconsin. Recipient of the Army Commendation Medal with Oak Leaf Clusters, he is survived by his parents and his wife, the former Beverly Hubbard, and three sons. And Army Private First Class Thomas E. Pete Matouche, East High Class of 1964, is killed when the truck he's in goes over a landmine in Long Con Province. Matouche was drafted shortly after high school graduation and arrived in-country mid-August 1966, three weeks before his 21st birthday. He is survived by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph J. Matouche, 1959 East Washington Avenue, two brothers and three sisters. Army Private First Class James Cliffcorn, 21, Edgewood Academy Class of 1962, is fatally shot by a sniper on April 14th while serving with the 1st Cavalry Division in the Onlow Valley. 
Cliff Corn was three months shy of graduating from Mary Knowles Seminary and entering the priesthood when he dropped out to join the Army and go to Vietnam. Army Specialist 4th Class Leonard D. Thompson, 21, 42 Worth Court, is killed when his tank battalion is ambushed in Quang Tri Province on April 25th. A member of Plymouth Congregational Church, he worked at Sub-Zero before entering the Army shortly after his graduation from East High in 1965. Marine Lance Corporal Gordon Wayne Stofflet, 20, also the East High class of 1965, dies June 29th of wounds received in action with the 1st Marine Regiment of the 1st Marine Division on May 13th in Quang Tin Province. A member of Holy Cross Church, he is survived by his parents, grandparents, and seven siblings. Stofflet joined the Marines in January 1966, arriving in Vietnam that July. Army Specialist 4th Class Vernon J. Stitch, 21, a heavy truck driver, is killed in a vehicle crash in Camran Bay on August 7th, 10 weeks after arriving in Vietnam. Stitch is survived by his father and mother, 2112 Atwood Avenue, his wife, foster mother, and five siblings and foster siblings. Army Corporal Mark W. Newman, 20, West High Class 1965, a paratrooper with the 101st Airborne Division, is killed while on patrol on August 25th. Newman, whose father, Master Sergeant Willard F. Newman, 1833 Baker Road, is the supervisor of Army recruiting in Wisconsin, had volunteered for six months extra combat duty. Army Specialist 4th Class Robert P. Casperson II, 24, East High Class of 1962, is killed in action in Quang Tin on November 15th. A Big 8 Conference wrestling champion, Casperson was seriously injured on October 27th and had been cleared to return to combat just five days prior. He is survived by his parents, 3418 Home Avenue, a brother, sister, and grandparents and Marine Corporal James Don Plessity, 19, West High Class 1966, son of Mr. and Mrs. Leonard W. Gafke, is a casualty of friendly fire during combat in Quang Tri Province on December 6th. He is survived by his parents, a sister, and two brothers. The last time Plessity was home on leave, he expressed anger at student protesters and the anti-war movement. May their memories be for a blessing. That's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, sacrifice-saluting, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer tonight was David Ahrens. Your reporters were Reed Kamai. And a warm welcome to our newest reporter, Tegan Carter. Welcome, Tegan. Special thanks to the feature contributors, Sean Bull, David Ahrens, and Stu Levitan. Our pledge rapper was Jade Isiri Ramos. And on the phones are Bill Kingsbury and Michael Goodman. Engineer Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Weggie helped produce this broadcast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. Up next is a live and jam-packed edition of Query. <laughs> 